Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. If you are one of our guests, we are glad that you're with us this morning, and it is good to see you all. You got super quiet super fast. I have a few announcements that I'd like to pass your way. Um, these two right here are for for the women. At the end of this this week on Friday and Saturday, there, there are two events coming up. One Friday evening up here at the church, which is Bingo with the Twist. And then Saturday morning um, is the Encourage Her meeting that uh, where they meet at Debbie Call's house um, for, for discussion and prayer. Um, the details for those are on Church Center, um, and you're welcome to come and be a part. Um, so check Church Center, um, or you can get there through the events on the website um, to to uh, to learn more details about it. Also, we have a we begin letting you know about our Love Does event that the uh, Beyond Our Doors team puts on or hosts, and that is for April first, second, and third. And so I want to pass a couple of details to you about those three days. The first day. Um, is a day where we will work to meet the needs of individuals, and some of those needs are coming in. People are letting us know about things that they would like some help with, and so we need your help, um, and you can sign up and let us know what kind of skills that you are able to offer to help out with things. You can do that through the sign-up process, um, and we, we could use your help. The second day, um, we're helping part ministry partners of ours around uh, Conroe. And there are three specific opportunities that are available there. We can use your help for that as well. Um, so you can sign up to help with day one or day two. And then the, the last thing to know is uh, day three is going to be up here at the church after the service on April 3rd. And that is for everybody, even if you can't help on uh, work day one and two, that's for everybody. But we still need you to sign up so they can plan for food. Um, so... Help out with Love Does, um, sharing the love of Christ with uh, people around our church here in the Conroe area, um, and then come celebrate with us after church on the 3rd. Um, if you have any trouble getting signed up for that or have any questions, you can come to me, or if you want real answers about the Love Does event, you can go see Mandy Hodge, and she's standing right there in the back, if you don't know what she looks like. That's all I have. Let's stand together, and I'm going to start this morning reading a couple of verses from 2 Corinthians. These, these two verses come from the passage where Paul talks about um, asking God to take this thorn out of, out of his flesh. Um, and you may not have one of those, nor do I, um, or even really know what it means. But the words that follow um, are powerful. Um, and this is what he says. He says, but he, he being the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's worship together. So with 
the sinner's restless heart.
we thank you for the love that we find in Jesus. We thank you that when we know full well how undeserving we are, how much we fail, that you love us anyway, and that you show us daily through your Son, your love for us. We thank you for that. We ask that you would teach us now, draw us close. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're one of our kiddos, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. And if you're one of our guests, feel free to go with your kiddo to get them checked in and meet the staff, and then you can come back and join us. Before we look to God's word, I'd like for us to go to prayer together as a church family and uh, pray for the country of Ukraine and what's going on over there. Um, it's uh, obviously an unjust war, and uh, many of us have friends and acquaintances over there. Uh, I've heard about the student at Lakeside that uh, has family there, an exchange student, one up in Huntsville as well. And, um, and so families are split, um, heard great heroic stories of uh, people caring for one another, protecting one another, and of course, very tragic uh, stories as well. So I would ask that you and I go to prayer, and I'm going to read from Psalm 27 uh, first, and we will pray for the comfort of those there, the protection of those there, uh, for the name of Christ to be magnified in the midst of this. This is what David says in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you in times of tremendous uh, turmoil and hurt and injustice and evil. And we thank you, Lord, that you are in control, that you're on the throne. And we don't understand uh, how this is allowed to go on, why it's going on. But we thank you that you are on the move in Ukraine. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your protection of the people. We thank you for the stories we hear of uh, great comfort and great escape and great help from people in other countries, uh, taking them in. Lord, we pray for the refugees, that you would comfort them today, and especially as many are separated from families. We pray for those in the midst of battle, that you would protect them, Lord, that you would give them a confidence. We pray for those that uh, are part of your family, that are serving and caring for others and uh, sharing the gospel. We pray that your name would be magnified through all that goes on and, and that many would come to Christ. We pray that you would stop Russia and that you would send them back home. We thank you, Lord, that we can turn to you without fear because you are our refuge and our strength, our burden bearer, and you sustain those who are brokenhearted and those who call on you. 
as we call on you today for your miraculous work. We pray for those that are here as exchange students or as travelers or as family that are separated, that you would give them communication, that you would continue to allow them to experience the power of your presence through your peace. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. There are times in our lives when we make a defining statement by standing up for something that we believe in. The U.S. Embassy tweeted out a video this week of a Ukrainian couple doing just that. Uh, perhaps you saw it. It's an elderly couple that is seen shooing away Russian soldiers from their property and saying, not in my house. This uh, video of their security video of their property showed uh, three Russian soldiers trying to break in, finally breaking through the gate and coming into their property. And then you see this elderly couple moving out toward them. Can't understand the language, but you can tell by the arm movements and the hand movements and the, that they are shooing away these soldiers. Soldiers are in full armor and raising their rifles as they scope out the property. And this couple walks right up to them and shoes them away, turns them around and escorts them off the property. They were saying, not in my house, not today. That's a defining moment in their lives. And I don't know, we've heard so many heroic stories from the people of Ukraine. If it's just one more heroic story, we've also heard stories of Russian soldiers not having the heart for this war. And it could have been that, but regardless, these people stood up and said, not in my house. Well, today we're gonna to look at a passage where we see Jesus confronting evil with an anger, a righteous anger, and essentially saying the same thing, not in my house. He says, not in my father's house. We're gonna to turn to John chapter two. If you will, we're in this sermon series titled, Hello, My Name is Jesus. Do you know him? And the purpose of this is to enlarge our understanding of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend, our Creator, our Sustainer, the one we know so well, right? We don't want to take him for granted, so we want to enlarge our understanding so that we know him better. And as we come to know him better, we want to love him more deeply. And as we love him more deeply, we want to follow him more completely. That's the purpose of looking at Jesus in a fresh way through this series of passages that we're looking at. Today, we're going to discover the fierce anger of Jesus. We'll see that he's aligned with those who acknowledge, or a lamb who acknowledge their need of him and come to him with penitent hearts prayer and adoration, and he's a lion toward those who do not acknowledge their need of him, and especially if they are leading others astray from him. And we see that in this passage, John chapter 2. We'll see that his anger, his righteous anger, is rooted in his love, love for God 
and love for people. And that might actually help us think about how we deal with our own anger. We'll see if we get there. I want to read from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I want to read the entire paragraph, and then we'll look at various aspects of it. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is what we read in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, they had been in Cana, verses 1 through 11 was the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus had done where he turned the water into wine. So now they've gone from Cana over to Capernaum. And then we read in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, meaning it was almost at hand, almost time for it. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins out of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus confronts what he considers to be corruption and commerce in a place of prayer and worship. And so in the first couple of verses, verses 13 and 14, I want us to look at this. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a mission. Everywhere that Jesus went, he was on mission, right? He was here to reveal the Father to us, to reveal God, to explain him. Only he can explain the Father to us. But he was also here to glorify the, the Father and to obey the Father and to accomplish what the Father wanted him to accomplish in this world. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem, just like he had entered Cana, just like he had entered Capernaum. He's on a mission, and he brings his disciples with him. These are four disciples that he is called to follow him. They're from John chapter 1. We've got Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. So those are the four disciples who are with him, traveling with him. They've come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And John's words capture the purpose for the travel to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was near, we read in verse 13, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. One way that Jesus stayed on mission and one way that he brought honor and glory to God was through his obedience. And so when we see him here going to Jerusalem for the Passover, we see him being obedient to the Father. Scripture said, Deuteronomy 16, to observe the Passover feast. And that's what he's doing here. It was said that the male, the Jewish males were to attend three feasts each year. And the Passover was the major one. And that's what we see Jesus doing here in John chapter 2. It was the feast that celebrated the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt and led them toward the promised land. That's why they would gather to celebrate God's work and what he had done. 
So Jesus was obedient to the Father. That kept him on mission as he went to Jerusalem, and that's why he went to Jerusalem. He also went to do ministry as he walked along, as he encountered people. But he was here to fulfill the law, and he did that so that we would not have to live in bondage to the law. The Apostle John in his writing of the gospel, focused mainly on the events in Jerusalem in Jesus' life. And so he gives us three times that Jesus went to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. And this is one of them. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and found the temple unfit for worship. And this is what we read in verses four, verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. The court of the Gentiles, that outer courtyard of the temple, was filled with merchants and money changers. They were there selling animals for sacrifice and changing your coins for the temple tax. This must have been a shock to Jesus, not just the fact that they were there, but the noise, the commerce, and the corruption behind it. To Jesus and his disciples, can you picture them going from Capernaum up by the Sea of Galilee, coming down to Jerusalem and, and, and gathering with pilgrims along the way because tens of thousands would come to celebrate Passover singing the songs of ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, talking about the exodus and, and how the Lord had passed over all that had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Excited to see what would happen. Four disciples that are now following Jesus and whoever else decided to tag along. And they walk in and they find a temple that is not like they expected at all. In fact, I'm sure they were in awe of the beauty of it and the size of it. But they weren't in awe of the worship that was taking place because it wasn't. There was no petition that could be heard or seen in that outer courtyard because it was overwhelmed by the commerce taking place. Business is being conducted in the temple. The merchants, merchants are selling the, the, the sacrificial animals, the, the sheep and the doves and the oxen. And this is the only place that non-Jews, the Gentiles, are allowed to worship. And so if they have come there to interact with rabbis, to ask questions about scripture, to pray to God, to meet God, they are confronted with all this noisy commerce. Business is being conducted in the temple courtyard. But it's not just merchants, it's also money changers. And they are the ones who are taking your coin, whether it's Persian or Syrian or Grecian or Egyptian, whatever it was, they would take your coins and they would give you coins from Tyre. Tyrian staters, if you would. They are pure in their silver. And they were the only ones accepted by the priests in the temple. So the money changers would take your money 
they would exchange them for Tyrian staters and they would take a cut on the side. And so there was a lot of graft and corruption that went along with this. Business is being conducted in the place where worship should be highlighted. The merchants and the money changers had started as a convenience so that people have to buy all this off-site and trade out their coins off-site and then bring it all to the temple. But it had begun to run amok and it had taken control of this area. And Jesus is upset. The religious leaders have found ways to make money for themselves and they are essentially tearing down the people and preventing their worship. And there is a disregard for God's glory right here in the temple where he is residing. That's what Jesus sees as he enters Jerusalem on a mission to honor God and to serve people. He's astounded at the commerce taking place. So what happens next kind of takes a strange turn in the way that we normally think of Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, we see that Jesus erupted <laughs> with displeasure. Jesus is furious. He's furious over the treatment of God's temple. This is God's house. This is, God is in this temple. And, and this is the same God who called for the feast to be celebrated and observed. There's no reason for honest worship to be interrupted these people are enslaved to a corrupt system designed to enrich the priests and the religious leaders. So Jesus acted on behalf of God. He is here to promote the desires and defend the purposes of God. And so he's going to take action here in verse 15. He enters the fray. And this is what we read in verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus took time to weave together a whip. So think about that for just a second, because if you're thinking, well, Jesus, you should just calm down, take a few deep breaths. He had the time to do that. But he went and found these cords. He put them together so that he could get the cattle and the, and the sheep moving, so that there's no more bleating where there should be prayers and, and, and no more bellowing where there should be honest worship and sincere worship of the living God. And he takes those whips and cords and he moves the animals out. In fact, we read here, he drove them all out of the temple. Can you imagine these animals? It must have been sedentary while they're waiting to be moved out and, and he gets them up and running and they're running on stone and, and slipping and sliding and they're running down the temple steps. It's got to be a crazy scene. Jesus has a righteous anger toward the way God's glory is being disregarded and the way people are prevented from worshiping with interruption and commerce and corruption. The panic among the livestock is real. Can you imagine the emotions of the four new disciples? 
I don't know. I looked at it from several different angles this week, and, and the best I could come up with was, you know, when, when you're a kid and you go over to your friend's house and one of the adults just blows up into a rage, and you're like, uh, trying to ignore everything, trying to stay out of the way. That's kind of what I picture these four disciples doing at first, like Jesus, you know, <laughs> we've only known you a little bit. And that, that wine thing was awesome. <laughs> but, you know, we can get in trouble here. This is the temple, Jesus. There's all kinds of emotions swirling around, but it's interesting by the end of the paragraph, they're going to come to their senses. They're going to even going to focus on some part of scripture that they see Jesus actually fulfilling. Well, Jesus removes the animals. And so then he addresses the money changers and he just flips their tables over. And can you imagine how many coins there must be for tens of thousands of pilgrims? Every one of them, at least the men over 20, have to pay the temple tax and, and they have to change their coins. And these coins scatter and they make noise. So we, we've got animals running. We've got coins scattering. We've got tables flying. Jesus is furious at what is taking place in the temple, the place of God. He says, not in my house. He's passionate and he's fierce, but he's not reckless. I, I'm amazed at the sentence that John put in there in verse 16. He says, and to those who are selling doves, the doves, of course, are in cages. He said, take these things away. He didn't flip them over. He didn't damage the doves. He said, just take them away. And then he makes the statement, this is my father's house, and it is not to be a place of business. Stop making it that way. So not only did Jesus act on behalf of God, he spoke with the authority of God and for God. Again, he is on mission for God to promote the purposes of God in this world and to address everyone and to minister to everyone. But right here, right now, he sees that these people are disregarding God's glory. They are not using the temple for what God designed it for. They're not even celebrating the feast the way it should be celebrated. This was a place where sinners should be able to come and find forgiveness, offer sacrifices, and enjoy fellowship with God and receive the reassurance of his favor and grace. Jesus cited his father here for purposes of authority, not for his identity. It wasn't time yet to make his messiahship known this early in his public ministry. But he uses the authority of God, the Father, to claim this should not be a house of business. He is intent on restoring worship in the temple, wholehearted worship, worship that makes God central, worship that is just simply responding with all that we are to all that God is. That's such a simple little definition of worship. And these people could not do that because they were constantly interrupted by the noisy commerce, by the animals and the corruption behind it all with the money changers. Jesus was furious and intent on restoring worship in the temple. In the next verse of this section, we get some explanation for the emotional outburst of righteous anger. In verse 17, we see that Jesus executed his mission with love. Jesus executed his mission with love. The ruinous commerce of the temple compelled Jesus to act. 
The Son of God is here to defend the purposes of God, working out the Father's purposes. And, and the question that arises as we are confronted with this in Scripture is, what does a godly emotional life look like? Is that okay just for Jesus because he's the Son of God? What about us? Is it okay when somebody cuts us off on the road? Is it okay with every slight and insult that we get just as angry? Well, let's try to un unpack a little bit, to, to look just a little bit at what is going on for Jesus. Jesus was emotional, but not in, in a way that we sometimes use it as just some imbalanced, improper reaction to everything that's going on. We know that God is not capricious. We know that he is not given to reaction to us. His emotion is proper, it is sober, it is controlled. So where does it come from? It comes from tremendous depth of feeling. And when we look throughout the Gospels in Scripture, probably the primary emotion that we see in Jesus is compassion. Is that fair? As you read the Gospels, we often see Jesus moved with compassion, did such and such. He was moved to the outcast leper to touch him, to heal him, to, to the blind men, to the grieving mother. Jesus was moved with compassion. And, and when we read of these occasions, they are not just simple acts of kindness. These are not just deeds of compassion. These are things that he felt deeply. They were visceral for Jesus. He was moved by the turmoil and the bubbling anxieties as he looked upon a person. And out of that compassion, out of that movement is how he acted. He had such a deep love for people. And so we see his depth of feeling. We see his compassion. We see how he comforted people and how he healed people and how he brought wholeness to situations. But today's emotion is not compassion. It's anger. And it's righteous anger. Jesus is deeply moved, as deeply moved by the anger here as he is by compassion when he looks upon people. So how do we deal with our Lord being angry? Doesn't that seem contradictory for the perfect moral being? Well, I like what Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, has to say. He, he refers to B.B. Warfield, a, a theologian of long ago, no relation to B.B. King. And Warfield points out that it's impossible for a moral being to be indifferent to injustice and to evil. So a perfect moral being is obviously drawn toward good and repulsed by evil. Jesus is a perfect moral being. He is filled with compassion. If he was compassionless, then he would not have acted for the leper or for the blind man or in the temple. 
but because he is filled with love for God and for people. And because he is the perfect moral being, he responds as Christ did. It would be a contradiction if he did not get angry. Jesus cleaned house in the temple. It's out of his love for God and out of his love for people that he reacted. And at this point, the disciples kind of come back to their senses and, and they recall scripture that they have heard taught in the synagogue. Psalm 69, verse 9, and this is what we see in John chapter 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. In Psalm 69, the psalmist spoke of his profound commitment to the temple, to a place of worship. In fact, it was because of his commitment to the Lord and his loyalty to worship that he wanted the Lord to rescue him, to bring deliverance to his need of the moment. But he spends time on his zeal for the temple, for the house of the Lord. The words fit the zeal which Jesus had for the proper use of the temple and for God's glory. The condition of the temple here had become a, a, a vivid and clear indication of the spiritual condition of Israel at that time. The religion had become a, a, dual, a dull routine. It become ritualistic and routine and people were not engaged in their worship. In some ways, if they were in the court of the Gentiles or close to it, then they could not even concentrate on the Lord. But overall, they had begun to drift from the Lord. And in another place, Jesus would quote Isaiah and he would say, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what Jesus seeks in our worship. And he wanted to at least restore the temple to a place where people could worship from the heart. To a place where there was not corruption, to a place where they were not interrupted by commerce. When Jesus declared war, he declared war on hypocritical leaders, the religious leaders who were exploiting worshipers. And this action ultimately led to his death. Even the comments that follow in, in verses 18 to 25, we see him interacting with religious leaders. And that is brought up again at one of the trials of Jesus before the cross. And so it becomes a literal statement when he says, my zeal for the house of the Lord consumes me. It will be used against him in his trial. The cleaning of the temple grounds is not an isolated incident in Jesus life since he loves God and he loves people he cannot remain stagnant at any time isn't that how you and I feel this whole Ukrainian mess I am sure there had been a lot of indignation a lot of anger that has arisen in your heart as you consider what is going on and the number of innocent lives just being pulverized, whether they're killed or displaced or lose all their possessions or separated from families. These are injustices that cause us to have a righteous anger. Or when you hear about human trafficking in our region, that's the kind of thing because we love people. 
and we believe that they possess the dignity of God and that life is sacred. And so we are moved to anger and that moves us to action because we love God and we love people. That's what's going on for Jesus as he looks here at the temple. It's a righteous anger which has caused him to take action. I want to do a quick tour, just three passages of where we're confronted with the anger of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Just for a reminder that, number one, this is not the only place that he is angry. It's certainly not the norm. He didn't go around known as the angry rabbi. But at the same time, we get a, a better idea of the love of Jesus for people and for God. Matthew 18 tells us about those who were leading children astray and causing them to sin. And Jesus said it would be better if they drowned than to lead children astray. A millstone thrown around their neck and take them to the depths of the sea. Matthew 23, there are eight woes that are proclaimed by Jesus, eight judgments upon the Pharisees and the religious leaders because of their hypocrisy, because of their egos, because of their disregard for the God that they said they served and supposedly pointed people toward. Jesus was angry with them, and his language is strong, especially in the names that he gives to them. And the descriptions, that's one of the places where he talks about them being like a whitewashed tomb, all beautiful white marble on the outside, dead bodies inside. Their hearts were not engaged in worship. John 11, we see Jesus deeply moved at the death of his friend Lazarus. And we see Jesus moved to tears of sadness. But we also see twice that Jesus is deeply moved, deeply troubled. He is angry and he's angry at sin and death that has entered the world and, and Satan who is the keeper of death. And so he is moved and in this raising of Lazarus among many other things, we see Jesus symbolically conquering sin and death by raising him up from the grave. Jesus is furious that sin exists in this world and the consequences of living in a fallen world. So he deals with it there with the Lazarus. But what that does for you and me is he gives us comfort because Jesus still feels the same way. And so when you think about your life and you think about what it's like to try and stand upright in a fallen world, when you think about what it's like to deal with the consequences of sin, whether they're your own foolish choices or the result of someone else or just living in this world, it is comforting to know that Jesus is not happy about that, that he is distressed the way you and I are distressed about it, that he grieves sin and evil in this world as much as we do. And that when he says he sustains the brokenhearted, he means it. When he says, I am with you, that means he is present 
experiencing that with us and guiding us through it. That, that is why we can take to the bank the truth of my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. He knows what it is like for us to be beat down by sin and death, and yet he will sustain us. It's why we can say that all things work together for good for those who love him because he is conforming us to his image. He is making us more like him, which is the ultimate goal on this faith journey. Jesus is moved out of his love for God and his love for us. He wants to see God honored and glorified in our lives. He is the one who carried our sorrows and bore our griefs. We read in Isaiah 53, he is the one that we can trust and call on. We are thankful for his love for us. So the cleaning of the temple is not an isolated incident in Jesus' life. This is true to his character. And he has a righteous anger to any injustice that is going on in our lives. We're people that get angry easily. And anger is permissible and normal in a fallen world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, be angry, do not sin. So certainly there are times when we get angry on our own because of insults and slights and distresses and circumstances. And we have to deal with that anger. How can we do that? Well, if it's just simply a hurt or you've taken offense at someone, then you can go and be a peacemaker. You can reconcile with them. We have lots of scripture that it turns that hatred into love and allows us to act out of love, to offer forgiveness. If it's a matter of fear, perhaps losing control in some area of our lives or relationships, then we can entrust it to God. We can turn to him and let him know exactly what's going on to let his grace be sufficient for us in whatever area of life that we are dealing with. We can turn to God. If we're angry because the glory of God is being disregarded or because we see an injustice in the world, that is a healthy thing. And we can turn to Jesus and commune with him and seek his leading on how he would have us approach and confront whatever we see going on, how he would use us to serve others or to serve this world. When we walk with Jesus, we get to know his heart for God and for people. We get to see better and better his ways and his thoughts and understand how he would have us serve in such conditions. Obviously, these suggestions are just to help us be more intentional about how our anger is used and how we deal with it. Certainly, there are those of us who use it inappropriately, whether it's just a flashpoint or it's a bitterness that we carry, and that has to be dealt with before the Lord. But if not, we want to be able to take action in this world. So I would ask you, as we've done in other passages, to ask yourself, who are you in this biblical historical account? 
Are you Jesus with the righteous anger? What is it that you need to address in this world? Whether it's through prayer or through action, how can you love God and love others? Are you the sincere worshiper who is having trouble because of interruptions? Are you the one who is interfering with the worship of others? We want to be a people who go to God, who learn what it means to love God and love people and allow an indignation and a righteous anger to rise up, not so that we can be angry or in control or authoritative, but so that we can serve others and draw them closer to Christ and bring wholeness and healing in this world as servants of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do love us, and we thank you that your anger here reveals for us a, a deeply rooted love that you have for the Father and for his purposes, for his glory in the world, a deeply rooted love to see him worshiped and given the glory that his name deserves, and a love for people, Lord, that we would engage in wholehearted worship that engages you uh, from the heart and, and doesn't just go through rote ritual routine, but enjoys the relationship that we have with you. And we pray that as you continue to build into us and, and change us into your likeness, that we would have your heart, that we would see people with your eyes and be moved by the things that move you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Your looking into my heart 
Thank you guys for being here today. Have a great week.